Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello again, everyone. This is Patty, and welcome back to my podcast. It is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Steve Miff, Chief Executive Officer of the Parkland Center for Clinical Innovation. Steve, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show. Patty, thank you so much for having me. You're most welcome. So, Steve, uh, tell us how the PCCI came about and uh, your affiliation with Parkland Hospitals. Yeah, it's actually a fantastic uh, story. PCCI started as a department within Parkland uh, back in uh, 2010 with the goal of uh, starting to really look at uh, readmissions and trying to understand the role that social determinants of health and particularly housing and stability were playing into uh, the individuals and patients that the Parkland was serving. And uh, in 2012, there was the realization that an organization like PCCI would much better operate outside the direct walls of a healthcare system. So PCI was spun off into an independent, separate, nonprofit organization that's still affiliated to Parkland through our board. So uh, the goal was to not only be able to continue to work with Parkland and the community that Parkland serves, but also enable the organization to reach out and collaborate, partner, work with other organizations locally and nationally. So that was the start of uh, really what I'll consider to be PCCI. And one of the, I think, uh, really important development in our journey has been that um, since 2012, we started to build various models using data science and applying it to social determinants of health and programs and realized that the number of those models had much broader application and commercial value in the, in the marketplace. So instead of forcing PCCI to be also that commercial entity, we spun off a separate company in 2015 called Pieces Technologies, who is a completely different company, venture back, different uh, structure, leadership, etc., but created a exclusive licensing agreement between the IP that PCCI has developed and will continue to develop to license it to a startup organization that can commercialize that, expand it, bring it to the broader market, and PCCI would uh, continue to be an innovation, early stage, R&D type of organization, but uh, benefit uh, from uh, those uh, commercial activities. So I think that that's also kind of adds to our journey, adds to our story, and I think it's a really important piece of uh, not only our history, but um, how we're looking to uh, expand and succeed in the future. Yeah, that's an interesting background. Uh, actually, it's a very interesting structure that uh, you just described. And of course, uh, PCCI and Parkland Hospitals, you're based in Dallas. And so I imagine your focus, at least for the near term, is uh, mostly in and around the Dallas area? 
It's been in Dallas, and we've continued to expand and work with other entities beyond Parkland in the DFW area. But over the last 12 months, and this is something that's uh, going to continue moving forward, we're expanding our partnerships with other organizations across the country, again, focusing on really staying true to our strengths and mission on applying data science and social determinants of health to those vulnerable uh, individuals and populations but also be able to partner with organizations to build, test, uh, deploy some of these models in newer and different geographies. I think uh, having that uh, opportunity to really understand how some of the things that are working locally can be adapted in other geographies with other popu- similar populations, it's a key part of our journey, and uh, we've already uh, started uh, on that. Right, and I'll come back to that further on in the conversation. PCCI's focus seems to be on underserved communities. I think you alluded to that in your earlier comments, especially focusing on leveraging social determinants of health to serve underserved communities. Can you maybe give us uh, an example uh, for our listeners to understand how or take any project or initiative where you've used social determinants and your internal uh, capabilities with data sciences and model building and so on to demonstrate uh, positive outcomes for your uh, community. No, absolutely. And you, you are so right. What you know, I called sort of the, the PCCI genius. That happens when three things come together. One, our ability to leverage our data science and uh, AI, machine learning, cognitive computing capabilities, apply that to uh, social determinants of health for the you know, high-risk, vulnerable populations. And I think a great example of how all those things come together has been focusing on one of the very critical populations that are impacted by socioeconomic status and conditions, and that's the looking at pregnant women who are at risk for preterm birth. And as we've uh, really focused on that population, I believe there are three key things that need to come together for that to be effective. One is to be able to understand the risk so that risk stratification becomes critically important to understand the profile of an individual so we can tailor the interventions and engage individuals based on their needs and risk. So don't treat each person the same. Number two is connect individuals to services. What I mean by that is make it easy, make it accessible for individuals to be able to understand not only the risk, but understand the options they have available and make those options easily accessible. And number three is also engage individual directly. We need to and uh, have seen great results in not only connecting providers with the broader community to support those individuals, but engaging individuals themselves, but do that in a customized way based on their needs and risks. So as we started on this journey, we took the uh, social determinants of health, and that became a key predictor in the model. But it was done in a way that what we quickly learned that is only powerful when it's specific enough. And to get it specific enough, you either have to survey or collect information directly from an individual or use information about their environment, about their neighborhood to understand that local social economic challenges. And that needs to be done at the block level, not at the zip code level. So as we gone through that journey, 12 months results, we risk stratify over 26,000 women 
enrolled over 800 of them into the program. And a key feature was th- of that was a text messaging program to remind them about their doctor's appointment, provide nutritional tips and other patient-specific messages. With really the main goal was to tailor those and increase prenatal attendance. So SDOH metrics I mentioned, but also pharmacy claims were some of the metrics that went into developing the machine learning driven predictive model to identify and risk stratify the pregnant women. The model included over 110 features that were contributing to preterm birth. Things such as housing instability, nutrition, nicotine and alcohol use, whether it's medical comorbidity, obstetric history, etc. And the one-year pilot were actually not only pleased but a bit surprised of how effective it was. We saw over a 24% increase in prenatal visit attendance among the women receiving the text messages, and that resulted over 27% reduction in preterm birth at less than 35 weeks of gestation, and that contributed to an over 54% decrease in baby cost per member per month. So, you know, sometimes uh, some of these programs are hard to get off the ground and you don't typically see a ton of results in the in, in our first six to 12 months. So we were particularly pleased to see these fantastic results. So if you were to boil this all down to maybe the one or two big variables that have a very strong correlation towards improved outcomes in terms of everything you described, reduced mortalities and uh, increased health for the mother and the baby and so on and so forth. What are the one or two that you, based on your work, have uh, come up with as the most important predictors? Yep, absolutely. So certainly medical history, including uh, the pharmacy utilization, and the number three social determinants of health. Those are the three key elements. But again, the social determinants of health only became part of the top three predictors when that information was specific enough at the block level. When it was initially modeled at the zip code level, the social determinants of health factors were outside of the top 10. So social determinants of health is now a big topic and uh, Different people are focusing on different aspects of social determinants. There's an example, and I've heard this being said, that the zip code is probably the single biggest determinant of health outcomes for a community. On the other hand, we also hear things about food deserts and transportation deserts. Now, we're seeing Uber and Lyft and all these companies forming partnerships with electronic health record vendors to kind of include the option to actually offer free rides to people who do not have access to transportation, as an example. So when you talk about social determinants, what are the one or two things that, for your community, that come up to the surface as the important ones? So each community varies. In our community, what we tend to see is that uh, access to nutritious food tends to be the highest and most prevalent need, followed closely by transportation and housing. However, Patty, what I will tell you is that we've studied this extensively, and as we've looked at the needs of individuals, not just the primary need, but on average, individuals that have one social determinant of health need, they have about 2.5 total needs. So what I think it's really important as we talk about these is not only addressing the primary need, but concurrently addressing some of those other correlated needs as well. 
So that's one of the key things that I think it's important to really understand and create an ecosystem and a connected uh, community where these things not only are being understood, but an infrastructure to be able to connect individuals to those services so they receive assistance not only for food, but equally, like you said, for transportation, for housing, utilities, daycare, and the list goes on and on. But don't just look at one, look at collectively for the comprehensive needs of an individual. So tell us a little bit about your data sources. Where do you get the data from? And uh, what does your data management infrastructure look like? Yeah, that's one of the key things that oftentimes are not, is not talked about a lot because we always jump into the fun part, which is sort of like we talk social determinants, all the machine learning. But without the right data and the right infrastructure to be able to manage the data, you can't really do anything. And I'll go back to the point that I made earlier that for us, we have a strong belief and we operate under this principle that health begins where we live, work, play, pray, basically where we spend our time, it doesn't begin in our acute care facilities. So what that translates to from a data perspective is a need to comprehensively understand an individual and digitize that information about not only their health care and their health history, but information about their life, information about their neighborhood, information about their environment. And I'll give you some specific examples, but in addition to that digital data, We're also trying to understand qualitatively via behavioral sciences also the choices that individuals have to be able to then influence the choices that they make and also better understand the context about their self-capabilities, resources, challenges, and some of the things that are starting to be called around learned helplessness, which gets into even when services are available, understanding why an individual might not be leveraging and utilizing those. So long way of saying that digital information and then qualitative information really important. So from a digital information, I mentioned that we need to understand three key things. Their healthcare, including mental behavioral health and the health history, information about their neighborhoods and that individual life and bring together those. So for example, for the healthcare data is the opportunity and the ability to ingest not only claims from whether it's health plans, state HIS, local HIEs, but equally data from electronic health record. For that environment, be able to ingest and leverage data from local municipalities, whether they're 311 system, 911, as well as data and information from community-based organizations. And increasingly, because so much of the care is transitioning to home, is ingest data from IoT devices as well as mobile uh, communication devices. So a lot of data, right? And it's all in different sources. So then the technology footprint needs to be able to accommodate that. We actually looked at licensing that from, from somebody else. We did that for a short period of time, but quickly realized that it was not really conducive to the innovation R&D work that we're doing. So actually, we ended up over the last uh, two and a half years building our own infrastructure in partnership and leveraging the Microsoft Azure cloud uh, environment. And there are five critical areas that I see and we have seen they're, they're really important to be able to manage this. 
One is a secure encrypted connectivity endpoint to be able to accommodate the ingestion of all those data sources that I mentioned, anywhere from using APIs or Fire APIs, SFTPs or databases. In some cases, we just need to ingest spreadsheets because that's the information that a community-based organization has. You need to have a data engineering and orchestration engine to be able to bring all that information uh, together, align it, uh, fill in the missing data, etc. The fun part is that machine learning-based predictive model environment. What we've decided that's really important is to use as many open source modalities available because that facilitates better knowledge transfer and facilitates much better uh, co-creation. But then you need to have a data persistence framework You also need to have a data dashboarding reporting framework to be able to accommodate the end user modalities. And finally, the fifth thing is a security and access control. So that kind of spans all those different things. So complex because of the type of information that needs to come together, but also I believe it needs to be done in a way that, again, facilitates the knowledge transfer and facilitates uh, co-creation because it's such an emerging uh, space. And that's, of course, a perfect segue for us to talk about the models themselves and your whole process of developing your own proprietary models or tapping into models that are available as part of your Azure machine learning platform. Uh, There's obviously a big opportunity to improve healthcare outcomes through predictive analytics, through AI, machine learning, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, But there is a flip side to this as well. And AI has been getting a little bit of attention of late for some of the unintended downsides or consequences, if you will, such as unintended bias. Uh, There was one uh, example that was recently quoted in the papers where I think it was one of the big companies whose models were found to systematically discriminate against certain members of the population. These black box algorithms are, people don't understand them, and in many cases, it's not even revealed to them. So there's a lot of complex issues around this. Can you help unpack you know, where we are in terms of accepting AI models as important and necessary inputs for improved care delivery, and what should we be cautious about? No, great, great question. And you're so right. There's been so much attention, and AI has become such a buzzword that it feels like everybody says they're doing it. And as soon as they put it on their portfolio, the valuation goes up by tenfold. But I think one of the challenges has been that it's not being applied or measured and the results have not quite been there. And I believe that there are three key things that need to happen in order for AI to be meaningful, given the space that we're in today. One, it needs to be scientifically sound and physician tested. And what I mean by that is the discipline and the rigor around the statistical analysis, the modeling, as well as clinical input into the parameters of the models need to be really sound and that information needs to be very transparent. That's not the place to be proprietary. Number two, and you already talked about it, it cannot be a black box. And that black box is not only just the scientific component to it, but how it's being used. It cannot just generate a risk score that tells somebody, hey, this is a high-risk patient without being able to give that individual the 
reason or the top features that are contributing to that risk. Because by giving those the insights from the model, it starts to enable individuals to better understand what's contributing to that risk and gives them a start where to explore further for better understanding and for action. It actually kind of takes it from just being a predicting model to what I'll call a prescriptive because you're starting to prescribe where to actually look next. And the third critical component, which I think has really been missing and we've been focusing a lot on, is how do you seamlessly embed any AI or machine learning type model within existing workflows? You cannot expect individuals to use them if they have to go outside of where they're already doing their work. So whether that means directly into the electronic medical records or within the workflows of a community-based organization, the volunteers, et cetera. But that needs to be a pretty critical uh, component to it. So those three things I think are critical. I think one of the other things, Patty, is that we have been talking about AI and machine learning as this one thing without a lot of attention on when you think about models that not all is the same. And what I mean by that, I tend to think about three different categories. One is more of the supervised time type of methods where we learn known patterns. I think, you know, anybody that's doing AI, probably, you know, majority of models are in that space. So, you know, takes label input data, predicts outcomes, future, thinks of sepsis models, et cetera, fall in that category. The second bucket is that unsupervised methods, it learns unknown patterns of much fewer organizations are doing that. That takes unlabeled input data, finds hidden patterns. Things such uh, clustering or patients like me type of analysis uh, falls under those type of methods. And finally, sort of that whole reinforcement type of models where actually you generate data. So you take labeled input data, interacts with the environment, learn series of action, and starts to actually generate the data. So that's more of the action-derived rewards, whether it's chemotherapy, clinical trial dosing, regimen selection, et cetera. So I think folks need to understand that it's not all the same. You need to really apply the right model to the right area. And also be thoughtful about where are you applying these in healthcare, because there are different applications, whether you're talking about safety and quality, whether you're talking about drug discovery and therapy, diagnostics, administrative, etc. Yeah, you're probably aware that the FDA is also trying to bring about some, they're proposing some kind of regulation around some of these algorithms so that there is a degree of transparency around what actually goes towards uh, determining the uh, predictors and uh, using them in care pathways and treatment protocols. But also whenever there are any changes there is some kind of a a log, a trail, or some kind of a compliance process in place that helps people understand what change in the input and therefore what kind of output can work. Quickly, do you have any thoughts on that? Are you a part of the process? Are you working with the FDA by any chance? No, currently not working with the FDA. We're actually working uh, closely with CMS and CMMI, and I've been participating in uh, listening sessions as they're thinking future models and uh, applications. Uh, but no, I have not uh, to date worked with the FDA on this. Okay. The work that you're doing is very complex, very advanced, and of course, it requires talent of a certain caliber. And data scientists are hard to find and even harder to keep. How do you manage that? 
Yeah, I was chuckling on that because it's interesting. That's actually significantly accelerated. It's been more challenging over the last 18 months. It was before, but the competition for talent in the space, and it's not just within healthcare, it's across all sectors. It's really been uh, difficult and it's intensified. So we're right in the middle of it, and we're focusing honestly on three key things, and that's sort of uh, proven to be somewhat uh, successful. One, we sell our mission. And that's around the opportunity to apply this to help the most vulnerable within a nonprofit uh, type of environment while operating within a structure and similar culture to a technology startup. So sort of that dichotomy between the application of the work, being really close to the impact of the work, but having the capabilities of a technology startup uh, very uh, impactful and resonates with individuals. Number two, we actually sell to candidates access to our data and access to and uh, the makeup of our team. So we feel, and Dick Daniels, who is the chief information officer for Kaiser Permanente and who's on our board, constantly reminds us that we have unprecedented access to data, not only through the relationship that we have with Parkland, but with the local um, Medicaid plan, the local HIE, so and the local community. So we have real-time access and pipelines created to be able to use patient-level data to be able to build, test, deploy these models. So we sell that because oftentimes that's one of the barriers and uh, any geek and data scientist, that's meaningful to them. We sell the team because I think the size of the team is meaningful as well. We have over 10 data scientists led by Vikas Chaudhry, who was the head of uh, data science for Epic and built that team. We have a very diverse group. So being part of a learning group of peers, uh, it's something that we focus a lot. And, you know, and finally, we have actually started to create our own pipeline. And what we've done internships in the past, we've created a much stronger focus on that. And for example, this past summer, we launched a much more formal internship program that focused on advancing women in data science. And we had uh, seven summer interns, obviously all, all female. So we took and spun that. We did it in, in a partnership with uh, the statistics department at SMU here locally. And it's been extremely successful and something that we're going to be looking to continue moving forward. So we're sort of trying to create our own uh, talent pipeline and actually ended up hiring one of those individuals out of the summer program, something we hope is going to continue. Fascinating. Well, Steve, you've got some very interesting things going on, and I want to thank you for sharing some of that with me and our listeners. And I really look forward to following your work and PCCI in the coming months and years. All the very best on your mission. And once again, thank you for joining us and being on this podcast. Patty, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I continue to uh, look forward uh, to uh, learning from your podcast because they're excellent and always very informative. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com.